I'm Chris Motes, and this is Faith in Politics. On this broadcast, we range from the soul to the state as we cultivate those virtues and explore those principles that help us live well as faithful Catholics in this great land. My guest today is Dr. Jack Gist. Uh, Forgive me if I've gotten uh, the last name there wrong, Professor. Correct me in a moment. Uh, Professor uh, uh, teaches humanities. He's published articles in journals such as Crisis, The Imaginative, uh, Imaginative Conservative, The New Oxford Review, Academic Questions, and St. Austin Review. And, um, and, and most recently came across his work in the Catholic World Report, had a number of really great articles published uh, over the course of the summer. They're going to be the, the topic of our, our conversation today. Uh, Professor, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How did I do on the last name? Gist? Gist. Uh, or G- it's Gist. It's actually the hard G. Most people say Gist. So yeah, it. Gist. <laughs> okay, well, you know, and I've got one of those net last names too. Is it Motes or is it Motz? For the record, it's Motes. But okay. hey, maybe before we get started, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Okay, uh, I'm just a Western guy, Rocky Mountain West guy. I was born in Wyoming, uh, went to University of Wyoming, uh, uh, surprisingly enough, went to graduate school in Alaska because I was even, I wanted to even get a little bit more remote. So I went into Fair, Fairbanks, Alaska. And then I taught on, I've taught on the Indian reservation, uh, along with writing. Of course, I like to, since I'm in the West, I like to be outdoors a lot, but I've taught uh, Dene College on the Navajo reservation. I've taught it for a while. I taught in Western Carolina until I realized that I've, uh, I loved Western Carolina University, but uh, I'm a Westerner. So I moved back West mm. and I write, I write in my spare time and I, I'm pretty heavily into my faith and, uh, the world is a disturbing place right now, so I've been writing a lot. Yeah, which has been great to see, um, and I really appreciate that background because sometimes we think of, you know, philosophy and theology, the, uh, theology is kind of some of these like ivory tower sort of things that belong on like, you know, these gilded universities on either coast, but you're like a, you're the, the Wyoming Westerner kind of guy that is like, some of your writing, it's really great, just sort of... Um, articulating some really important things, but you're, I almost, we haven't met before even our encounter right now, but there's even a kinship of, of we're in flyover country uh, together. So Catholic World Report, a couple articles this summer that I wanted to dig into because they're just really great, great articles um, for, for folks that aren't familiar. Catholic World Report is, is uh, a, a periodical. They publish news, editorial opinion, a uh, variety of issues of interest to Catholics. And um, your three articles this summer, the most recent one uh, published on August 12th, was titled The Fallow Fields of Academe and the Lost Art of uh, Disputatio. Forgive me if my Latin's a little off there, uh, pronouncing. But maybe just a a great, great article. And you've got this, at at the open of the article, you quote a guy named Joseph Pieper. And there's, you're kind of explaining a little bit, this disputatio, and this, there's this quote on clarification versus sensation. Can you tell us a little bit about what, what is Pieper saying here? Yeah, yeah, Pieper is a really good writer for anybody that hasn't been introduced to him. And he's, he's accessible in many of his stuff, especially in the, that sort of beginning to the introduction to Thomas Aquinas. And uh, Having been in a, a university humanities department, even though I'm not on either coast, it leaks in all of the politics and everything leaks in. So they're pretty political places. 
But just like everything you see on television these days concerning politics and maybe in the workplace and everywhere else, people don't communicate much anymore. They, uh, if, if you bring up an argument that they don't want to deal with, they usually go to the ad hominem to the man attack and they'll call you a name or, or, uh, They'll try to take it in another direction. And I, what Aquinas was doing back in the day, you know, this is way back in the day. He was a master at stating the other person's argument. They're better than they can state it themselves. And he, to do this, he had to be sympathetic. He had to listen to them. Mm. Because if you listen to them, you can't get you, if you can't listen to one another, there's no way to move forward. And we're at a stage right now that people really don't listen uh, too much to one another and and his method of argumentation especially in the academia should be more popular than it is but even there at meetings and things like this people they just talk over one another you see it on uh, news programs you see it everywhere it's 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 everywhere in our society and it's getting to a boiling point where i think that we need to cool it down a little bit maybe and listen to one another and see that uh, get our common humanity back well, and I love that just bringing the Aquinas's his real ability to like listen and articulate. We we can understand. We've heard of maybe the idea of of making a straw man out of somebody else's argument, where we actually repeat it in a way that's weaker, you know, mm-hmm. so we can attack it weaker than it actually is. But Aquinas had this thing where he like he he could do what they call like a steel man. He's like making their argument better for them, and then he would still take it down. You know, okay, he's still making his own <laughs> points. But that's a real, there's something within that that's like really uh, sympathetic and recognizes the dignity of the person with whom you're engaging. So you, you kind of set up this, this, this little introduction to dis, disputatio, the importance of listening. And then you talk a little bit about, you use this as like an introduction to what's called the 1619 Project. For, for listeners that have never heard of, of what this is, can you explain it just a little bit? Sure. It was a it was a little project that was uh, the architect was the New York Times, uh, some writers at the New York Times. And uh, what it's trying to do is and then this goes right. This will just go right along with the rest of the conversation is it's trying to rewrite history so that the, the America, the United States against anything like the Catholic thinker Orestes Brownson would ever concede mm. is the, the entire structure of America is based on racism. Our, our, that's the first time the slaves uh, were brought here, 1619, but even that isn't true. That's not the, there were slaves here well before 1619 with the Spanish brought them, the American Indians practiced slavery. Slavery is a horrible, horrible thing. We can all agree on that. We did have a civil war and things like this and we're yeah. progress. Progress is slow and we still have work to do, but they want to sort of in this project, which is being taught in public school systems right now, like in Chicago, Baltimore, places like that, they're rewriting American history for a political narrative. It's a narrative rather than objective history. It just won't hold up. Uh, historians from the left and the right disputed it and, and said that it's it's just not accurate. Uh, that doesn't seem to bother them. It's, they've even said that it was, that they had to finally come out and concede that it wasn't really history, it was journalism. But what they're trying to do is uh, replace a narrative with yeah. actual objective history. And one of the things you say in this, this August article is that the 1619 Project is seeking to displace objective reality by reconstituting national memory. And, and I don't know if, if this 
registers right away with folks necessarily, but maybe could you just say a word about like what happens, what, what will happen if our national memory is either erased or displaced completely? Well, if we look to history as our guide, objective history based on fact rather than uh, a narrative, generally what takes place is this, I mean, this isn't anything new in China, the Maoists uh, did it, the, the Stalin did it. I mean, once you erase history, you start tearing down statues, you start doing all of this thing and you want to start over people just for the, you have to consider that maybe they really do think something's wrong and they just want a fresh slate because there are yeah. some things wrong. There are we're humans. There's always going to be some things wrong. Yeah. But instead, so they want to tear it down. And usually what takes place is a totalitarian regime fills the vacuum. They tell their narrative what they want it to be. And it usually doesn't turn out well. Well, and that kind of, that brings to mind for me, a book I read a couple of years ago, John Paul II, it was a book called Memory and Identity. And he's kind of writing as a pole. The poles, of course, have been this people who have been like conquered repeatedly through their history, been occupied a number of times. And the occupiers were always seeking to like, destroy history, uh, you know, kill the academics, pre, um, get rid of those people who are the preservers of cultural uh, history. Because when you can do that, you can like remake a people however you want to. Yep. Um, so that, that book for him, I mean, this kind of cultural reflection for me was really important to even link to my own experience as American of like, oh no, our history, these ideas upon which we're founded and that are embedded uh, within our history, actually really important, even to us today. We're not just like this conglomeration of, of individuals. We actually are a people. We're not perfect. You know, racism, uh, it, it, it has existed within our history and it, and it still exists to a, uh, to a degree. We can, we can acknowledge that, but that doesn't mean that we completely rewrite, um, you know, our, our historical identity. Um, I think if I recall you, you even quote, uh, uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger in this description, if I recall, you're going back to the, the homily he gave in the conclave that um, would end up electing him Pope in 2005. Um, and and I, if I recall, it's maybe in the context of relativism. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, that's sort of a uh, paraphrasing here. It's about a dictatorship of relativism. And for, for people that are listening that, uh, that have probably heard that term thrown around a lot, what it basically means is this in a nutshell is that there is no underlying meaning to the universe. We impose meaning on a meaningless universe, each one of us individually relative to what we want. So it's about will. It's not about anything but will to impose. Uh, so th this makes it there's no truth more important or, or there's no truth. Actually, what I always mm -hmm. tell my students this. Because they, most of the students coming into the university, they believe in relativism. They've been indoctrinated sort of like, yeah, uh, truth is relative. It doesn't, uh, it's whatever you want it to be. Uh, this leads, of course, to there really is no truth whatsoever, because if yeah. everybody can make up their own reality, then that cancels, everybody cancels each other's out. And so what happens is like with the 1619 Project, it's not about truth. It's not about the Socratic search for the truth uh, at all costs. We mm. just want the truth no matter what happens to who has the better narrative that sticks, that can get into people's minds. And that's, that's reality. So we can bend reality to our language, mm. which, which sort of tries to change objective reality, which we can't, we're just mere humans. Well, that brings up Peeper again. Peeper, one of, if anybody's heard of Joseph Pieper but never read him, you got to go read him. His book, um, 
leisure basis of culture, like oh. change my life. But you yeah. just, you just mentioned like the importance of language right now. And he's got another book called abuse of language, abuse of power, where, where we're actually, um, we try and shift language. Anyway, that we, we could talk about that for, um, but maybe sticking to the disputatio, you, you cite Pieper again later in the article, uh, a book guide to Thomas Aquinas and he, and he locates disputatio within a specific home. Where is, where is sort of the primal home of disputatio? Well, it really should be. I mean, it, it's a, a, just from common sense, it should be in the university. Right. <laughs> that, should be the, that should be the place where that protects it above all else. That should be protected uh, because it, it speaks to reason. It's a reasonable way of, go, uh, of, of talking about certain anything you want to talk about. But it also promotes our common humanity in that we listen to it. We show some uh, uh, courtesy to one another and we try to understand what they're saying and we remain open minded. And we're not we have not we're not just arguing what we've already concluded. That's what happens these days is, well, I already know what, what my conclusion is and you already know what your conclusion is. So having this conversation isn't really going to change anything. So why have it almost? What is that? Is that what the university is like these days? I mean, you teach at a, a public university in a mountain state. What's uh, what's it like? It's a, it's there's there's good aspects of, of course. I mean, it runs uh, for the most part, cooler heads prevail. But like in humanities departments, you know, humanities departments are where these theories, these uh, critical theory from the Frankfurt School spread into uh, post-colonial theory, queer theory, all these theories and, and those two post-colonial theory basically suggests that reason, if you can believe this or not, reason is a racist construct. It's just a construct of oppression. Tell me about that. I have, this is a new one to me. Yeah. Well, post-colonial theory is the, uh, from the, it was Edward Said, the Orientalism, where we always uh, use language to oppress other cultures. One of their key tenets is Western logic and reason, logos, if you will, uh, is a cultural construct of oppression. And queer theory, on the other hand, said they want to blur all boundaries, so they argue for irrationality. That's why their theorists are almost impossible to read, because they want to be irrational. They don't want anything to be defined, because def definition, I guess, is a form of oppression. So that came out of humanities departments for the most part, sociology too, to a certain extent in other departments. Uh, but if, if the university can sort of nurture irrational theories, it's lost its way because we're not, we're no longer the home of reason logos above all else. The university is a Catholic invention uh, and faith and reason. We have to keep these things uh, front and center most of the time. Yeah, it, it, I, I appreciate that description, and I, I think we could even identify that, you know, I'm sitting in South Dakota right now. Our broadcast area includes, um, I mean, people could be listening all over the world on the, on the podcast, but the uh, Real Presence Radio Network, we've got the Dakotas, a little bit of Wyoming, Minnesota, um, Montana, and just even looking at like one of our, our universities here in South Dakota, um, it can be concerning, even though we are like these really wholesome people in flyover country. I'm just looking, pull it up, uh, the website for the University of South Dakota down in Vermilion. They've got this this online course that people can take um, called Safe Safe Zone Training, which you're not really sure what that means, but then you kind of pull it up and what are the learning outcomes from this this course? Well, you should, at the end of this course, you're going to be able to, quote, deconstruct concepts of sex and gender 
and differentiate between them, um, identify multiple potential forms of sexual and romantic relation orientations, describe the sex and gender binaries and critique their impacts, explain the spectrum model of gender, sex, and sexuality, and discuss critiques of the model. And I, I mean, I could go on. I, I'm just reading this and I have just a, I don't know, maybe a little bit of concern that in fact, this isn't a forum where we could have true dis disputatio about the subjects that they're bringing up. It strikes me as a bit more of um, um, an education, like here's uh, sit down and, and listen. Do, do you think that that's- You could say it was a indoctrination. Well put. I have, it, a, I have an anecdote about that. I, I've. I was the overseer of the philosophy club on campus for a while and they decided that they wanted to debate the, the gender equality club about safe spaces. What, what is a safe space? So I, 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 my, my advice was to the philosophy students was, well, mate, you're going to have to define your terms before you can have a, any sort of a, a discussion about it. And when it came down to it, they would not define the term. They said it was relative. It was relative to the situation. So we can't define what we really mean safe, by safe spaces because it changes upon context, which I told them, well, then you can't, you, can't have a you can't have a disputation on this if you're not willing to agree on some common ground what you're arguing about. <laughs> and so that sort of ended the, the, it wasn't really much of a debate, put it that way. It, just ended right there. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, it. It is. Do you, Do you see this particular? I mean, earlier you've. I think you mentioned um, critical. Was it critical? Critical race theory, critical gender theory. Do you see these these particular theories themselves and their proponents as as being somehow behind the degradation of true disputatio, or is it? Or is it more general yeah. than that? I think that it, you can make a case, and I don't know if you're familiar or the, the listeners will be with the Frankfurt School, which was uh, Marcuse and these, uh, these philosophers from Europe that fled during World War II and they came over here. But they were neo-Marxists and that they, they wondered why Marx, the, the revolution stopped in Western Europe. And they decided it was, pro, it was Christianity, it was Protestant work ethic, more or less. But they still wanted it to work, so they took Marx, they took Freud, and they took Nietzsche, and they made this weird neo-Marxist thing. And out of those, over the years, this has been in play for decades, uh, post-colonial theory, queer theory, uh, critical race theory, gender theory, all those things are connected to that, that school. So yes, it undermines, from our perspective, reason and rationality. So yes, it's very dangerous as far as I, I can in my experience, which is fairly extensive, I've been doing this for a while. Well, that's you've mentioned this word reason a few times now. Sometimes in our, our contemporary political debates, we get we get drawn into discussions of religious freedom, which are very, very important. But it, at times, it can seem like discussions of religious freedom can, can unwittingly characterize some of um, a religious believer's beliefs about public goods in narrowly religious terms, as if it proceeds from revelation god came down in a cloud on a mountain and said this is just it but you've used this word reason a couple times that can help us understand no the, there's actually um we can approach truths of importance to the to the civic order through through human reason mm -hmm. um, we can go back to aquinas on that because he was the the best of the best of the best on being combining discussing faith and reason we can 
Through reason alone, argues Aquinas, we can know God exists through human reason alone. We, yeah. can know we can't know God. We don't know. That doesn't mean that we know God, but we can know through human reason that there must be a God. And, and he, you know, he breaks that down. Those are pretty famous arguments. Yeah, you mentioned that, I think, in your July article, which was titled um, Wokeness and the Current War Against Truth, that Aquinas was articulating that the church's understanding of reason is that it's actually foundational to the law. And then you go on, maybe just tell us a little bit about the, uh, how you bring in Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his letter from the Birmingham jail. Okay, that, that, goes, that goes all the way back to St. Augustine, actually, that uh, uh, unjust law is not a law at all. Yeah. It's not, it's not a, a law, but uh, Aquinas argues that the basis of law has to be reasonable. Now, remember, mm. when he's talking about reason, there is human reason, but there's the larger logos which comes from the Greek reason also or word, or it can mean a lot of things, but it was in the universe. God is the ultimate logos in, in Jesus Christ. In the beginning, the beginning of John, in the beginning was the logos and the logos was with God and was good. Yeah. I think and that's so, the word that's used in the Greek, isn't it? In, in yes, John. it is. Yes, yeah. it is. So that's foundational to the Western world belief. And if that goes, if that goes, falls by the wayside for, because some people don't like it, Basically, and that's where I go back to Frankfurt School all the time, because I, I really do think that that seeded a lot of uh, bad things in the world right now. Mm. You know, uh, and Martin Luther King, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Martin Luther King's Jr.'s dream, uh, judging men on the content of their character, which I believe, and I, I could get attacked for saying this, I believe most people do that. Uh, at least I'm from Wyoming. We, I mean, yeah. I'm from, I live in New Mexico now, but in the West, you judge you you judge somebody you get to know them are they there's is their word good are they a good person and that's you don't really care much else about them too much this has all been uh another thing about queer theory and these other critical theories is that they don't have individuals they don't believe in absolutes and they don't believe in individuals they only believe in groups your social breakdown of what group you fit into yeah and that bothers me that I, I think that america's founded on a philosophy, not a history. And, and it's yeah. all men are created equal, basically in the sight of God. So, but we're individuals. We don't reduce us to our group that we belong to. Yeah. Equal in dignity, but equal doesn't mean uniform. It, it's not like we're um, dollar bills. Every dollar bill is the same as every other. We actually, there is a, yeah. Um, it, one of the other things that you mentioned in an article, you, you cite this, uh, another professor, Dr. Jason Hill, and he's kind of getting into the realm of, of policy here. Dr. Hill suggested that, that some humanities departments um, are actually a danger to national security. And it's maybe a, a little polemical. I don't know, um, you know, but his point is that there, there's actually a serious danger within them. And he suggests that public funding should reflect. Um, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I've had a lot of humanities professors, a lot of humanities grads on this show, the humanities are important. What, what do you think of this suggestion that maybe there, there's a danger being promulgated in certain humanities departments and that our, our, tax, our tax dollars, if they're in a public university, should reflect? Um, it, is, it is sort of a, a can of worms. This is a can of worms, but I have to agree with Dr. Hill to a large extent mm. because if you look at uh, most of these young rioters that you see, like there was in New York City just a few days ago, they arrested about five or six of them. They're affluent 
college kids. So they're really learning this somewhere, right? Yeah. In Portland too, so many of the Antifa, I, I read an article that some of the professors of the university are teaching these kids how to, you know, be good, uh, basically protesters and rioters. So it's festered in the universities and it's, it's, it's pretty tough right now, but I, I would agree with Dr. Hill that it is dangerous. Any that as we go back to earlier in our conversation, the university can't promote irrational behavior. And with these, these radical theories, they're promoting hate for one thing. And they're, uh, for, uh, they're promoting non-reason. They don't want to, yeah. if you, if you try to argue with these people reasonably, they do, they'll just call you a name. They don't, they can't, argue back because they're not using reason. <laughs> well, and one of the things that came up for me as I was reading that um, in your article is, is this famous speech that Abraham Lincoln as a young lawyer gave to, uh, it's, I think they, it's called the Lyceum speech. It was given to a group of young men in Springfield. And he's got this famous quotation in there. He says that if it ever reach, uh, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us, meaning a danger, a danger to our national um, perseverance. Mm -hmm. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. So when Professor uh, Dr. Hill is talking about, you know, actually maybe there are some humanities folks that are um, dangerous, quite frankly, to our country. I wonder if, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, might agree with that too. Well, that's a that's a great quote. I've heard that quote before, and he's I think it's spot on correct. Uh, most cold, I think you could go to Rome, you could go to Greece. There, they fall from the inside, not the outside. They get rotten from the inside, and and uh, with all this, you know, uproar going on this summer, which is due to a lot of things, I realize. But we're uh, I think people are becoming aware that maybe the universities weren't the place they used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, and we've got uh, about a minute and a half here remaining, uh, Professor. One, one maybe just to spend the, our last minute on this question. You've, you've spoken of a fissure in our public life between reality and a narrative, and this fissure is widening. And mm -hmm. It'll widen until things fall apart. I'm reading um, Patrick Deneen's book right now, Why Liberalism Failed, and he says that another possibility is that this, this fissure that it could fall apart or it could actually be held together by an increasingly powerful state. Do you agree with that, that possibility as well? And if so, which one do you think is more likely? Well, I think if we keep going, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I'm, I'm an anti-relativist. I think that there is an objective truth. And I think that there are individual human beings uh, that, and we all might, approach that truth that, that the absolute truth from a different perspective that doesn't that doesn't alter the absolute truth but once we abandon that idea of god or an absolute truth uh, everybody just starts it's a will it becomes a nietzschean will to power that's all there is is whoever gets the most power and we see that in washington right now they don't play by any rules except to win that's all they play for is to win power more power and so I see that if the narrative strategy keeps up, I, I think it'll the center can't cannot hold to borrow from Yates. Professor Jack Gist, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you for having me, and thank you for joining us, dear listeners. As always, don't hesitate to reach out sdcatholicconference.org. Click contact us. Until next time, live well.